Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Another episode of Nightlight Part Two. We have another new voice joining us this evening. Matt Adams is here, and his subject of the Stone Chambers of New England fits in perfectly with Ken Quiethawk's all encompassing introduction. Matt Adams has been involved with examining the stone structures of New York and New England for a long time. A rediscovered stone chamber is Matt's primary focus now, and he has documented his observations. Matt's website is nehssie.com. Hi, Matt. How are you? You there, Matt? Barbara, is is, uh, Matt unmuted? Yeah, the microphone is slow tonight. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> there we go. You know, we had a little tech tech glitch there, but uh, we're, we're working through it. So, Hi, Mark. Uh, Hi, Matt, Barbara. How you doing? I'm good. Yeah. How are you guys doing? Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm fine. Um, Thanks. Thanks for having me tonight. We are glad you're here. Um, yeah, it's so nice to have another new voice uh it's you know it's guests like you who are um making us not resort to the unending ufo topics that are heard on so many other networks but it's that kind of diversity that you bring that uh keeps people interested in our show that's what we want to do just keep um, broadening people's horizons. So, you know, I want to thank the listeners for that. Um, you know, Matt, how did you become aware of th- this uh, undocumented chamber? So, let me let me rewind a little bit. Um, okay. 
about three years ago, I got real serious about researching a lot of the stone structures throughout New England. And I originally started with the intent way back in 2004 of wanting to do a documentary. Now, back then I had small kids, didn't have time or the funding to do it. And so, you know, fast forward through life, we get to like three years ago, 2017. And 2016 was a nightmare for me. I didn't, I had to move. I spent all summer like doing things I didn't want to do. And I I didn't get out into the world at all. And I said, you know, I have to get out in summer of 2017, like with a vengeance. And so I started that project back up, you know, just, I was going out with my boys again and taking them out to see some of these things. And um, it, it just, it got a little serious and, and something sparked um, between my son and I, and we, we felt an energy to, to move this project forward. Um, we had started filming some stuff and we, we put out a video and that was, I, I think I had started a Facebook page by then. So we put out this video of a stone chamber in New Hampshire and like within a week it had 14,000 views and we were like, Oh my God, this is crazy. Like people want this content. So mm-hmm. we, we got into it a little bit more and I just for fun created like a documentary intro and, and had some music done for it. And when we put it together, like we were moved to tears, like the feeling that we got inside when we watched this, we were moved to tears. It was, it was that powerful for us. So we knew we had to keep going with this project. So the page kept going we kept growing the page a little bit and then last year i started a facebook group which is you know they function differently right the group you can chat with all kinds of people everybody can share stuff everyone can see it the page doesn't quite function that way and when i started the group i just was sharing photos and videos of stuff that we were doing because we thought it was cool You know, and we had the energy behind it. We knew people wanted to do this. Now we've got a focus in mind. We've got a goal. And the more and more people that came into the group, the more and more people started to share things with me. And so eventually one day I saw a post, and I don't even really think that this particular one was in my group, um, but a woman posted a stone chamber down in Connecticut. And... I went to the NERA archives, and for those of you who don't know, NERA is the New, Eng- the New England Antiquities Research Association. They've been around since 1964, or I think even sooner, but they organized in 64. And so they've got like 70 years of archives, people putting notes and, and all kinds of study information in there, and it's a wonderful, wonderful resource. So I went to the, the archives, and there were no notes or, or site reports on this stone chamber. And I was like, okay, so there's something new here, you know, and, and this is after um, I'm going to call it the scamdemic. And if anyone wants to disagree with me, they can, but 
uh, after the scamdemic happened, everyone's sitting at home and, and looking for stuff to do. So instead of going out, I said, I contacted this woman. I said, Hey, um, can you share with me a little bit about this stone chamber? And would you mind removing the location from online, you know, share your photos, but you know, kind of the etiquette that, that we go by is we don't share exact locations. Um, especially Mm -hmm. since this one hadn't been researched yet. Right. So anyway, she, yeah, she sends me the, the coordinates, her and her husband, um, and we start talking and chatting. And I spent about three weeks putting uh, what I could put together of a field report using the coordinates alone. And so, you know, what kind of stuff was I able to even put in this uh, field report? Well, she sent me photos and I was able to, you know, look at the photos and assess a little bit about the structure itself. Um, I had them go and, and get the orientation to which it was facing and it was facing southeast towards winter solstice sunrise Mm -hmm. so there's that and then um, some of the other things that I was working on at the time was uh, you know I had some simple questions I noticed there's a group on Facebook and the guy posts a lot of stuff and he's usually looking at or, or saying, like, from this particular chamber, you know, this particular star can be seen to rise. And so, you know, where I am now as to who I think built these things, I'm more along the lines of uh, Native American Indians and colonials or post-colonials. So I've, I, I started with all of that you know, hey, maybe it was Irish Kaldi monks. And, you know, I first got like Robert Ellis Cahill's book and all of those ideas were presented to me. And, you know, I just, after I got out in 2017, like strong, 2018, 2019, 2020, I'm at the point now where I just don't think, I just don't believe those things anymore. I, I just have seen a complete lack of evidence to suggest that there was a large enough culture to have built enough of these um, structures to say that, okay, these structures were built by, you know, whatever people might have come here from somewhere else. I, I just, that's where I'm at with it. So for better or for worse, I know, I know people have got their opinions, but that's where I'm at. Um, So one of my, my questions was to, to get back and to tie that into this particular stone chamber. Um, one of my questions was, well, what were, what stars or not even just stars, what were the native Americans actually looking at in the sky? And Mm -hmm. this was a question that I directed to probably one of the best experts you could ask. The, The man's name is Herman Bender and Herman was a guest speaker at NERA. I had met him on Facebook and he was a a guest speaker at one of the NERA conferences, I think in 2018. And he needed a ride from Logan airport in Boston up to Nashua where the talk was. And I'm like 15 minutes from the airport. And when Herman and I had started talking online on Facebook prior to this, like months, months prior to this, um, the, the plan was always in the air. Like, Hey, if I'm ever in Boston, um, Herman's out and, Minnesota or Wisconsin rather. Um, 
if I'm ever in Boston, we'll get together. So here's the opportunity to get together with, with this expert, Herman Bender. So I pick him up. We, we chat all the way up to Nashua. Um, he's there over the weekend. I'm chatting with him on and off over the weekend. And then at the end of the weekend, I interview him for about an hour and drive him all the way back to the airport. And in that time, I had the opportunity to ask him a few questions and just listen. Now, I got to tell you a bit about Herman Bender. This guy, he's, he's been invited into certain Native American circles that no other white person and, and sometimes no other man, male, period, has been invited into. Um, for instance, it is, it is. It's a great honor. Uh, for instance, there was a, a circle of Native American midwives, and they saw their numbers dwindling, and they knew that their knowledge would be lost if they didn't find a way to record it and preserve it. And this was a circle that no man had ever been invited into, ever. And then enter Herman. So he goes... He talks with them. They tell him everything that they need to tell him with the stipulation that he doesn't reveal any of it for 10 years. And that was for him to be able to sit on the information, digest it, embody it. And that, that decade is almost up, and, and Herman's got a book coming out. Um, I'm not quite sure Ooh. when, but probably within the next year or two. Um, He's got a book coming out that's going to detail a lot of what he's learned from from that circle. Um, so, so this is the kind of person that Herman Bender is, and he's done a lot of this um, real close work with 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 these type of groups. And and he's the expert that I asked about what you know what heavenly bodies are are the Indians looking at, and he told me, you know, the sun, the moon, obvious stuff. And then there were a few stars and the Milky Way. And I was like, hmm, okay. So I started looking at the Milky Way. And the Milky Way is its an interesting thing. Um, it's always out there. We can't typically see it much anymore because of the light pollution. But if you get into a, a place that's dark enough, where there's no light pollution, um, you'll be able to, to focus your eye on it sometimes. And I had started to wonder, like, hey, I wonder if some of these chambers are aligned to the Milky Way. You know, well, what does the Milky Way even mean to the Indians? Why is that significant? We know the sun. We know the moon. Those are kind of obvious things. They're always in the sky. We can always, always see them. With the exception of the moon, maybe a couple of days a month, right? Um, mm -hmm. but what's the significance of, of the Milky Way? Well, in a lot of Native American cultures, tribes and, and you know, different tribes and different systems of belief, and not, e not even just exclusive to North America, but worldwide, the Milky Way represents the serpent. And especially to the Native Americans, it represents the serpent. And so one of their beliefs is that the, the entrance to 
the the underworld and the exit to the underworld or from the underworld align with the Milky Way. And that's where the souls of the dead go, um, you know, during certain ceremonies. So at certain times of the year, like, uh, for instance, solstices, there is a certain hour where the Milky Way, it's, it's a ring around us, right? And at a certain time, it's maybe slanted in the sky. And then at another time, it stands straight up into the sky. And that changes throughout the year. You know, as the sun changes and as the moon changes, the sun will change the throughout procession. the year, the moon. Yeah, exactly. So, so on certain times of the year, certain days of the year, it will stand straight up into the sky. And I started looking for those, for those dates and those orientations. And in the sky, it's about two, it depends on your latitude, but here in uh, the Northeast, give or take, you know, maybe a degree or two or a couple here or there, depending how far North or South you are. It's about 230 degrees to 238 degrees, right? Somewhere, you know, in there. And again, depends on where you are. But when I started to look out of the entrances of these stone chambers, uh, I was able to find ones that are already oriented to either southeast or southwest. And around those areas on the horizon, uh, about 123 degrees is the winter solstice sunrise, and then, like I said, about 230 or 38 or so is the winter solstice sunset. Uh, That's where I'm seeing the Milky Way um, sometimes. Sometimes it's with summer solstice, sunrise and sunset. But you can, and and those are the entrances and the exits to and from the underworld in in Native American culture. And and a lot of the chambers that I enter into and, and look out of are oriented to these directions. More so to southwest to the 238 or so degrees than than southeast or any other of the two like um would be uh, summer solstice sunrise or summer solstice sunset right which is Mm -hmm. summer solstice sunset is 303 degrees and uh i can't pull up summer solstice sunrise right now but i think it's like 58 or something degrees but the majority of these are are aimed in the direction. The entrances are aimed in the direction of 238 degrees. Well, that's pretty interesting that we've got such a high number oriented to that particular direction, and we've got something that's you know quite close to that that is very important to the Native Americans. So that's the the leading theory right now that I have and I don't know if this is entirely true yet. I still have a lot of work to do, but I'm definitely starting to see a pattern um, of, of alignments that, that correlate to these, to these uh, certain areas. And the, the function, the function of the stone chamber, why is it aligned to that and what's the connection to the Milky Way? Well, 
as we both know, or as everyone knows who's listening, it's tough to see the Milky Way. So I think the chambers are actually apertures, and they help block out any other light so that your eyes can begin to focus more on the Milky Way itself. Uh, so that's that's kind of where I'm at with with some of these with some of these structures. Yeah, um, Matt, you brought up a, a couple really uh, good points. Uh, you know, with that comet that is uh, flying under the Big Dipper now. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've always wanted. You know, like, or or some of these. Chambers built w- where someone can observe, you know, Halley's Calm. And I just throw that one out. You, you know, they, they uh, you get the, uh, the, is that the Leonid meteor shower in November? You know, that's predictable, but you know a lot of the other one uh, comets are so far apart. Uh, you know, it's like generations are going to you know come and go before it shows up again. Yeah, you know, I just wonder if uh, any of these uh, chambers or some of the positionings of some stones were to uh, mark a unusual comet. I, I, I'm just kind of throwing that out. I, I don't know if that's really been studied ver- very much. I don't think it has. Uh, and and to be honest with you, that, that kind of that's above my pay grade right now. Uh, that's, yeah, I, I, like I would, yeah, that's what you know. Yeah, I just wait for people like you to be on just to throw these stupid ideas out there, and it's like, okay, we'll let Mad do the javelin catching on this one. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I just don't know either. I, 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 I just wonder if, if you know, it's like uh, you know the building of New Grange. It, it's so precise, but with the Irish, you know. Clouds and rain and you know precipitation all the time. How many generations did they have to just sit there waiting for? Okay, hey, hey, everyone, let's come back next December twenty first. Yeah, to get this, you know, one rock, you know, move down another inch or up another inch and. Yeah, you know, for because it is precise. Yeah, you know, I just you know wonder yeah. if we're missing something at some of these uh, uh, prehistoric sites that that really are uh, a- accurately lined uh, or, or laid out. Well, I've got a great answer for you for that one as far as being able to see like sunsets or sunrises on cloudy days on solstices goes anyway. Um, comets I think is pretty complicated, but when it comes to the sun, as far as solstices go, most people don't know this, but the sun is in about the same place 
give or take a fraction of a degree, which is not even noticeable by the naked eye, um, for about two full weeks, uh, about a week before the, the solstice and about a week after. It's, it's not very noticeable, the difference. And it's not even a full progression to one point and then back again. It gets to a certain point and then it kind of bobbles around. And what do I mean by that? The, the setting of the sun, the closer you get to December 21st, let's say, it's not a slow, slow, slow progression until it gets to December 21st. And then after to- December 21st, it's a slow progression back in the other direction. That's not how it actually works. It bobbles around a little bit each day and some days you know it gets it it might get closer every other day that's what I mean by bobbles around it gets closer every other day and so then maybe December 31st it's the actual furthest it's going to be but you you really can't tell the difference because it's just imperceivable to the naked eye and then after that for the next week or so it's it's doing its bobble thing again so the day after the the uh, sunset on the 21st like on the 22nd it'll be a little bit further away and then december 23rd will actually be between will actually be between the 22nd and the 21st and then it goes back on the 24th to being further away and then on the 25th, it's a little bit closer to where it was on the 21st. And it bobbles around like that, for, like I said, about two weeks, um, one week in either direction. So that's how the sun is actually moving. And, you know, how did I figure this out? Well, uh, there are sun calculators online. Just type, go to Google, type in sun calculator and put in your, uh, your coordinates for wherever you are. And you'll when you look and you change the date on the calculator and you, and you take a reading of, you know, exactly the degree that it's going to set at for each day for a week before and then a week after it's a total of 14 days. Right. And you just get that reading. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the reading, that's what you'll see. So it's not a perfect progression in either direction, but you've got two full weeks to set that stone. So sometime during that two weeks, if you get a clear sky, you're good. It's not as difficult as we think it is. You've got two full weeks to set that stone. Okay. Matt, um, speaking of these observations, like the southeastern orientation uh, and you know you mentioned patterns a few minutes ago there uh, I know Dennis has talked about uh, what was the watch house at America's Stonehenge it's like the only structure there that has a southeastern orientation um, you know 
we do see patterns uh, in areas. Um, you know, some of the New England places aren't uh, that far apart. Uh, you know, when you get to other areas, you know, there's there's a regional difference uh, of you know, like the uh, solstice uh, sunrise is you know going to be in the same direction, but you know there are uh, uh, regional differences for some of the uh, ob- observing some uh, other uh, like focus on cross quarter days or something like that uh, uh, a certain constellation. Yeah, th- these patterns that you know we keep finding throughout the ages seems like uh, it, you know, whoever is building these places are, are astute observers of various celestial events. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they they, they didn't have TV. Right? They didn't have computers, they didn't have cell phones. What, what were they doing? What they have to look at? And, and it, what we find... They did is, a great job. Of what, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What we find is that the things that are out there, the beliefs that they held must have been so common, like the knowledge about the, these things must have been so common that everyone in the tribe knew what it was from a young age. Um, I was recently at a site in Maine and we, you know, there's a big stone pile there, whether it's um, a native construction or a farmer's construction, that's debatable. But there's one thing that we found there that I don't think is debatable and, you know, by all means, if somebody has a better answer to this than I do, please get in touch and let me know because I don't know everything. And I'm, I'm learning new things all the time. And, and, you know, the more I talk with people, the more I learn, right? So, but here's, here's what I think is, is non-debatable. There's a stone wall. And one side of it aligns to the southeast, 123 degrees, exactly where the winter solstice sun will set, uh, sorry, rise. And then the other side of it is 180 degrees away at 303 degrees, which is the summer solstice sunset. So you've got the sunrise on the shortest day and you've got the sunset on the longest day. And the stone wall is aligned to both of those events, right? Now, if you're a surveyor, and you're out, and I, now I've seen this not only in Maine, right? this is just the most recent place I've seen it, and it's not even only with stone walls. There's a place in Massachusetts where I've seen a row of boulders aligned on a hill, not the, not the top of the hill, but like the edge of the ridge. There's like a drop-off um, on one side of this, and the ridge just drops off. But there's, the boulders are aligned that way. Okay, so it's not just walls. It goes beyond walls. But let's just run with this argument about the surveyor. If you're a surveyor and you're out and you're plotting, you know, 
land for whoever, right? And you're, you know, that's what your your job is. You're out there you're doing that. Are you going to align the boundary of someone's land to 123 degrees or or 303 degrees? Those just kind of seem like not round numbers. You know what I mean? That doesn't make much sense. And mm-hmm. would the surveyor have that kind of knowledge? Would he know, oh, well, you know, 123 degrees, that's where the winter solstice sets. So, you know, maybe the wall can go this way. And then uh, 180 degrees the other way is 303 degrees. That's the summer solstice sunset. You know what I mean? Like, why Like why would he pick that? It doesn't seem to make yeah. any sense. Like, wouldn't you use maybe 120 degrees or 300 degrees? You know? Yeah. I, it's it, 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 it's things like that that seem very odd in you know what you know Barbara and I talk about you know frequently when this subject comes up you know, you get some of those like megalithic yards like you know it's you know why don't you just make it uh you know, like the metric system where everything's like based on tens. You, know, you get these like you know really odd numbers. Like what? Was what that have to? How'd you come up with that? Can you make it any more difficult? Honest, but you know what? What don't we understand about that time period? Right. I mean, there's so much knowledge that that got lost. I'm going to talk about this, and I, and I I know it's a contentious subject. There's a lot of uh, people these days that wish to, you know, rewrite history, certain parts of history. You know, mm-hmm. our, our history, the history of the planet is filled with good and bad, right? And a lot of people want to rewrite some of the bad right now about the United States and whatnot. Um, yeah, the statues. Or the Americas. statues even. down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't even have to get into into that per se, but um, in the book 1491, Charles C. Mann had done quite a bit of research into the topic of how the Americas were before Columbus got here, and and some of how it was after, like how the Americas were affected, you know. Um, and his follow-up book was 1493. And that talks more about how the world changed based on the interaction with the Americas. But anyway, um, in this particular book, 1491, a lot of the research that, that he did and also uncovered, you know, sometimes it was other people's research, but he uncovered that there were, um, I guess, plagues that decimated the Indian population in the 1500s and in the early 1600s. Now, this was before people knew how to weaponize disease. And so the contact between Europeans and, and Indians, while it was probably violent, I'm, I'm not going to argue that point. My The only thing that I, I want to argue here is that the transmission of disease was not purposeful at that time. There are incidents later where, yes, some smallpox blankets were given to Indians 
And that's a terrible thing. I'm not, I'm not even going to argue that. But it wasn't happening in the 1500s. It wasn't happening in the 1600s. And it didn't happen in the 1700s. It happened in the 1800s. So for 300 years, we've got Europeans interacting with Indians for better or for worse. And we've got the incidental transmission of disease. And that absolutely decimated, decimated beyond what we can even possibly comprehend the population here in the Americas. There may have been 56 to 100 million Indians on both continents that died solely through disease. Now, if that didn't happen, the Americas would not have been conquered by Europeans by sheer numbers. It wouldn't have happened. But because that happened, the population decreased drastically, like like we can't even comprehend. And the amount of knowledge that was lost, and this is typically why I, I enter into conversations with people who, oh, that's not, that can't possibly be Indian. And, well, well why not? Oh, well, the Indians didn't do it. Well, how do you know? Well, they didn't build in stone or, you know, the Indians won't claim credit for it. Well, it's possible that the Indians that are alive today don't know because that information was lost. I'm willing to accept that that's a possibility. I I think it's more of a probability than a possibility, but, um, I think it's something that people need to take more into consideration when they think about these structures. Okay. Uh, Matt, you just mentioned the decimation of the population uh, starting in like the 18th century up until today. Um, You know, you know, looking at your uh, Nessie website as well as what Barbara uh, documents in her uh, Secrets of the Stones, there are hundreds of thousands of miles of these stone walls throughout New England. That's going to require... A sizable population to make that many extensive right uh, uh, structures. Right. Uh, it, it, you know what's interesting. Uh, okay, uh, it, then we have the stone chambers, which that. Um, I, yeah, they, you know, uh, like Manitou says that, you know, it's more built for like the shaman, like you know, the astronomer of the community to just be seated inside of it to observe Orion, you know, just say Orion. 
coming up over the hill, and that's the time of the year to you know, start planting. Okay, so but you know, we you know the 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 stone structures aren't or the stone chambers aren't uh, large enough for burials. It doesn't seem like there are any burials being found near there. You know where. Where were the people buried? But you know, we know they did engineering projects. I, I, yeah, that's pretty interesting. But yeah, there's there had to have been a huge population at one time. Uh, you know, who knows if they were making you know, like the pilgrimage circuits throughout the season and during the summer they were. Building walls in New England. Yeah, I would, I would, I would like to talk about that and dive into that a bit. Um, that's when I when I started getting out and through, you know, 2017, 2018, and 2019. That's really when my mind started to change about who I think built all of this stuff. When you realize just how much is out there. Ideas like Druids, Phoenicians, I can't say for sure that some of those cultures never made it here. I I don't think that they did. I'm open to the possibility, you know, show me some more solid evidence. And there, there are a lot of weird artifacts around that do suggest that there was contact, you know. But I don't think that there was any culture here large enough to have built any of these things except for the Indians and the colonials, the early Americans um, or European Americans rather. But like when you, when you go from Pennsylvania to Maine and you, and you go to all these sites in between, that's when you really start to understand the bigger picture. Right. Now when I didn't have that bigger picture, it was very easy for me to speculate that, you know, oh, Irish Chaldee monks came here and made a bunch of stone chambers. That was easy for me to believe because I didn't have enough information. But like I said, the more I got out there, the more I saw like the endless miles of stone walls that sometimes follow you down the highway. Um, if I can wax poetic in any glorious attempt to replicate Barbara's wonderful uh, documentary there. Um, when you see that much, you realize it just, it had to have been somebody that had the numbers and not only the numbers, but the time. And I don't mean spare time. I mean, centuries of time, millenniums of time, maybe. And we know that there are certain cultures like the Hopewellians, the Mississippians, and others, other cultures that that rose and fell in the Americas, right? Um, We know that there was a great Algonquin nation throughout the Northeast, United States, and into, you know, even like central Canada, right? 
why do we Correct. overlook the Indians as possible builders for a lot of these structures? Why do people so easily overlook them? That's what I want to know. I did. I overlooked them. And it was, oh, Indians didn't build in stone. But you look around and you really start to investigate and you start to see different things. But for you to make, I know Barbara did the math. Barbara and Patrick did the math. For you to build a mile of stone wall, you know, you don't just have to have the amount of people needed to build that mile of stone wall. You need to have the society that can feed those people. You need to have not only the desire to build a wall or the need to build a wall, you need to have the labor to do it. And those things, those two things don't come together unless you consider the Native Americans who had, you know, essentially endless amounts of time, right? They had, what, 12 to 15,000 years between glaciers and now, or, you know, at least 400 years yeah. ago. They had that yeah, much time to right. do it. You know, think about, think about this, right? Artifacts, arrowheads. Let's just take arrowheads. If one arrowhead was lost per year, that's 15,000 arrowheads. If two arrowheads were lost per year, that's 30,000 arrowheads. See where I'm going with this? Mm-hmm. They had so much time. And they, I truly believe they had the numbers to, to make a lot of these things. Okay, so why would they do it? What reason would they have? One, their spiritual beliefs. You're not going to you know, build these things for nothing. You have to have very firmly held, why do we build churches? Why do we build any kind of it, temple? It suits a basic human need. Yeah. Yeah. Religion or spiritual belief is a basic human need. And you know what serve any 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 purpose aside from religious? Yeah, it's possible. It's 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 more likely probable. Some of these stone walls, you know, they're not even walls. They're serpent effigies. You can follow them to the end sometimes. And I've done this, and I see, and even ones that look straight or meander a little bit, and you get to the end of it, and there's a a larger stone, and, oh, well, this boulder looks like the head of a snake. And that ties in with the serpent from the Milky Mm -hmm. Way. And not only that, but in Native American belief, in their belief system, 
the serpent was an animal that could travel between the earth and the underworld. There were three levels in the in, in, in the Indian beliefs. There was the underworld, there was this world where the people lived, the people meaning Indians, and there was the sky world where certain deities and the existed and the birds flew and you know, where the heavenly bodies are, right? So that's why you have symbology like a thunderbird, right? Great thunderbird mm-hmm. in the sky that brings the thunder and the rain. You've got the serpent who can travel between the underworld where, you know, they knew where water was. And, you know, certain stone was, a you know, they looked at like flint, for example, if they made an arrowhead out of flint, flint was a gift from the earth. It was a gift of, we know you can shape this. You can use this to hunt and feed yourselves. Right. And imagine how hard that was too. imagine how hard it was to learn how to like nap the perfect arrowhead. It's a skill. And, you know, at what age do you start learning how to do that? And then you've got to hunt with these things, right? And this ties in, listening out there, thinking like, all right, where's he going with this? He's just going to the place. I'm not. I'm talking about the functionality of stone walls, right? One functionality of stone walls might be game drive. We see some of these larger walls, they're like six feet wide. Why? They're like six feet wide, five feet tall. Why are they that large? One answer might be game drives. Mm-hmm. They'd run the, they, you know, they'd chase the animal up against this, this large stone wall, large barrier to be able to hunt. You know, and then we know that farming. I mean, we know more so that the Mississippians and the Hopewellians were farming. We don't hear much about the Algonquins farming, although I'm sure that they did. Why wouldn't they? I mean, we know that there was giant cornfields in, in New York, giant fields of maize. So again, how does this tie back to stone wall? Well, we also know that the Native Americans would burn the land. Now, for a couple different reasons. One, insect control. If you've ever gone out in the woods, you know how awful it can be when you get eaten by mosquitoes or, you know, ticks. Yeah, if you even pick up one tick. Right? So... How did the stone walls function when it came to burning the land? Well, that would be a fire break, right? The fire's oh, not that makes get, sense. Yeah, it's not going to get past the stone wall, right? Hypothetically, if you're, you know, continuously burning the land like they did, you know, they 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 would section off a portion of land and rotate every three years, right? Every three years, they would burn one section, you know, if they quartered it off. Every three years, they'd burn one section of that quarter and grow in the other three. 
And well, why would they do that? Because they knew that they had to refresh the land. They had been farming for how long? Long enough to have learned that. So we've got all different kinds of functionality for these stone walls. And it's like, oh, well, sometimes those answers are more obvious than you think. Oh, yeah, it, it, you are making sense. And you note that there are two different types of walls near this um, undocumented chamber that you've been studying. Yeah. You know, what? You know, do you think that those walls were a part of this? Uh, uh, you know, fire break near. Uh, could it? You know, ha- could they have served so- some other purpose? That's interesting. Um, you know, the serpent effigies. Sometimes they're short. I saw one, or I saw. A a stone wall that I believe was actually a serpent effigy the other day in Rhode Island. And um, it, it was maybe, maybe 30 feet long and a, and a cart path had kind of been put in you know, through it. So the middle section was not there, but one end of the stone wall was built up more like a head and it just kind of ended about mm-hmm. three feet up, right? The, the, on that end, it was like three feet tall. And then on the other end, it got, it, it like petered out. The uh, small stones petered out till it went into the ground. Well, what is the purpose of that? What, what is it even there for? It's 30 feet long. What function does that serve? Probably not much other than spiritual belief. And, and this is what we, uh, you know, our, our, this is what we know as ceremonial stone landscapes, CSLs. These have been investigated more and more over the past probably 20 years than before that. But it seems that all the older ideas uh, about giants or whatever whatever people want to think, those ideas persist when we're actually getting answers that I think make much more sense and have much more basis in reality. Matt, the 30-foot-long snake effigy you're talking about, it's just, uh, it's there, uh, one end does look like a snake head. It's 30 feet long. Or kind of you know, back to that um, 123 degree angle that you you mentioned it you know, towards the beginning of the show. You get some of these. Um, odd numbers uh, uh, 
you know, distances, you know, they they really don't compute to our way of thinking, but but there were, you know, like standard units of measurement, um, found at places like Poverty Point, you know, the Hopewell had uh, used at like, uh, was it 1,050 feet as a yeah. diameter yeah. of uh, some sort. It, so, it, you know, you get these um, use of mathematics. They're, you know, very precise. Uh, it, it's just the use of these odd numbers that is actually really thought-provoking. Um yeah, you know, I just wondered, like, how much the standard unit of measurement uh, was actually employed, but we don't understand it today. You know, there, there's the megalithic yard. Was there something else that was used? Now, see, I'm just wondered about it. it. It's very interesting. I don't go out and measure stuff. Um, my buddy Larry wants to measure everything, and he wants me to measure things, <laughs> and I probably should, right? Um, I've just actually – I'm being taught a new way to investigate the stone chambers, and that's to – learn how to break down the floor plan and kind of discover what system of math was used to build it. I'm not, I can't talk about it because I don't know it yet. So I don't want to like say the wrong thing. Right. Um, But, 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 but I want people to know that that's like in, in some instances, yes. And I don't know if it was employed by native Americans or not, but what I do know is that um, Linda Zimmerman, she's down in, I think, New Jersey or the Hudson River Valley. Um, In her book, Mysterious Stone Sites of Hudson River Valley in New Jersey, I think, um, she writes about a system of measurement that she discovered at a site in the Ramapos. Those are mountains and like southern New York, northern New Jersey, for those that don't know. She discovered a system of measurement, and it it's halved and doubled, and it's an odd kind of measurement. It's, like, not something that we would use, but yet right. there it is. So maybe they did actually have that. You know, I'm I'm not the guy that goes out and measures everything, so I don't have much to talk about in that regard, but... There is somebody who does, you know, and, you know, that's one of those things that, like, when I go, what's my mission? You know, like, when I go to a stone chamber, what's my mission? I'm looking to see, does it align with, you know, certain points on the horizon or not, you know? My argument is that if we can come up with a a graph that shows that, you know, X amount of chambers are aligned to the specific spot more so than any other, then that lends 
to the possibility that they might actually be Native American in origin. Um, there are actually people who have done just that, not with the chambers, but with mounds out in the central part of the country. Um, I think the Facebook group is Friends of Serpent Mound. I hope right. I'm I hope I'm quoting it right, but um, that sounds right. These guys have been, you know, they talked to Herman Bender too, and then they went out and they started looking. And this was unbeknownst to me, but they went out and they started looking to see if they could come up with a system where um, they could look at a mound and figure out if a, a certain part of it aligned to any particular direction. And what do you think they found? A lot of mounds that they investigated, they looked at them, and where do you think they're aligned to? 238 or so degrees, the winter solstice sunset, the entrance to the underworld. So these guys started releasing their research uh, over the summer, or uh, sorry, over the spring, uh, within the last couple of months, and and you know, it's 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 amazing to look at what they've done, and and to think that like I'm just starting, really, to kind of do that research, right? But you know, they've done it. And they were successful at it. At least they're arguing that they were, right? But here, you know, this is a multi-year project for them. And this is the conclusion that they've come to. It's beyond exciting, you know? It's like, here's a different part of the country, different structures altogether. Yet they're finding the same potential uh, spiritual, you know, ceremonial connection to this that I that I think that I'm starting to find. It's beyond exciting. And if you look at your website, you know, some of the places you visited, like in. Uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Barbara's movie, uh, Secrets of the Stones, uh, has some photos of the, um, there's like a cluster of cairns. Both of you uh, were at the same, looks like the same place. Um, I, I'm not sure if you, you sit at one place and you, you know this summer solstice sunrise comes up over one cairn or you know how, how it works, but you know when you look at all, what was done there, the placing of the cairns, uh, the engineering of all these, you know, like beehive-looking uh, cairns. 
Um, you get you get some of those uh, you know, down the eastern seaboard in other areas uh, you may have you know, like at the say the Serpent Mound in Ohio you, you, know, you have the solstice and uh, equinoxes built into you know, which coil of the uh, serpent mounds, you know, it's going to be visible. Um, it, it, it's really interesting how it, the different regions portrayed the same, they, they wanted to uh, participate in the same event. You know, they're just uh, engineering the, their works in different ways it's like like the serpent mounds different from like the all the chambers and uh, the cairns in uh uh Pennsylvania um it, it, it it's just a, a really interesting concept you know there's probably some evidence of the cultures mingling and exchanging ideas. Yeah. Um, The thing about that too is like cultures don't even have to mingle to have the same ideas, right? Right. There there are instances where two different cultures on two different sides of the planet have come up with the same way of, you know, whatever it is whether it's working with stone or whether it's coming up with certain bead designs or coming up with certain, I think there's an experiment or not an experiment, but like a project that's keeping track of old symbols, you know, that have been found all over the planet. Were these cultures necessarily connected? No, no, they didn't have to be. I think there are certain inevitable things that we come to or conclusions that we come to as human beings, whether it's a conclusion, a mental conclusion, like, Hey, the sun sets in the same, like that would be an observational, right. But the sun sets in the same place, um, you know, one time of the year and then starts going back in the other direction. That's a conclusion. And then, you know, maybe the conclusion is like, Oh, here's a, here's a good way to, to, put um, thread together to make cloth or clothes. Uh, Here's a good way to weave baskets together. You know, we'll we'll take similar materials and, and, you know, Hey, it makes, if you work it the same way, it makes essentially the same thing. You know, there's not, uh, what is it? Forget what it is, but uh, correlation doesn't, you know, similarity isn't the same thing as correlation, essentially. I'm not saying that right. I know I'm not, but I can't pull it up right now. But, it, yeah, there's, you know, like the uh, swastika was or originated in India thousands of years ago. And yeah. there's a co- the, the copper... Uh, there's a copper uh, a piece of artwork found in 
a uh, burial mound in uh, Chillicothe, Ohio, about you know, 2,000 uh, years ago when the person was interred. So, I, I, you know, does that mean there was uh, exchange of a, a meeting of people, or did uh, people who never met came to the same realization of using this symbol to represent the four cardinal directions. Right. It's, a, it, 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 it's really fascinating to ponder that. You know, since some of the people were circulating for you know their pilgrimage rites, but it's it, it just really in, interesting how. Uh, People in different regions express some kind of connection to a deity. Yeah, yeah, and, and a lot of a lot of the, the deities of different systems of belief end up having commonalities as mm-hmm. well. I mean, you look at. Uh, I don't want to go into examples, but. You look at certain gods of rain. Well, why did why do why is there a god of rain to begin with? Because people couldn't express, probably didn't know what caused the rain to begin with. So they had to explain it some way for them to make sense of it. Um, similar to the way that I was uh, believing that you know druids built all of these stone chambers. I didn't understand a different way how it could have been done. It, as well, uh, that, yeah, that's where you get some, the tradition. As many of the native traditions have been. Intact for you know, thousands of years, you know, much longer than many. You know, uh, you know just say say a lot of uh, traditional uh, uh, Christian beliefs. Right. The, you know, the concept has been around for such a long time, but they. Uh, and, you know these the stories that have existed within their culture unchanged for thousands of years. Uh, yeah, you know, that shows how how strong the people ha- have been for all, all this time. Yeah, I mean that's that's why you've got like the Jungian archetypes, right? Like Carl Jung. Yeah, you've got Jungian archetypes. Why? I mean, there are certain. Like Star Wars was as successful as it was because it followed the hero's journey, like the classic hero's journey. And now those the elements in those types of stories, they're essentially in our DNA at this point. I mean, they're just mm-hmm. we identify humans identify with those stories. Um, sometimes they're metaphoric, sometimes they're not but we identify with them, 
right? It, we all go through something like that in life, or we will at some point, and maybe the, the story of the hero's journey gives us the answer sometimes before we need it. But yeah, that's, that's the reason that those those movies sit well with people and, and people hold them close to their heart. It, it tells the human story. And those those stories, you're right, they have survived for thousands of years. And whether it's through storytelling or through religion, you know, different different belief systems often borrow from one another. Look at you know, look at what Christianity did with uh, you know pagan beliefs. They adopted maybe some of the same kind of things to get people from that particular culture to follow their religion, right? I'm sure that mm-hmm. different religions in different parts of the world do the same thing. You know, as people mingle, these things are just inevitable, right? They just, they're things right. that happen. I mean, look at, you know, there's, there's a lot going on in the world, a lot going on in the, in the world today. Right. And, and there's a certain faction of the country that or population of the country that, that want, to push for a utopia and they want their utopia to be that everybody gets along. Okay. But we only have to take a look at, um, see, I, I live in Boston, right? So we only have to take a look at, um, the West end of Boston to truly understand why that's not going to work. And when you get people of all of these different cultures, close together in a small area you know their their traditions and their their uh, ways that they show respect their beliefs their customs all of that they don't understand and this is why there was such uh, turmoil between Europeans and Native Americans, the two cultures just didn't understand each other. But to bring it back to the West End in Boston, um, there was so much trouble, a lot of crime, um, a lot of problems in the West End of Boston that I think it was 59, like in the late 50s and into like 1960, the answer was demolish the West End. You had Lithuanians, you had Germans, you had Italians, you had all these different cultures living together, largely for the first time, they're immigrants and they're all in this small area, living together for the first time and who don't understand each other. And that's, that's what caused the problems, right? So what was, what was the answer? The answer was, well, demolish the West End and build it over. Did it work? Eh, you know, that, that section of Boston's not horrible anymore. But is that the kind of solution that we needed? I don't know. What did it do? It ended up displacing a lot of people that, you know, that's like the poorest, right? They were the poorest uh, population and poorest section of the city. But how else do you do it? How well, else? How, you know, like you can't you can't force integration, right? 
I mean, that's essentially what, what was happening. Not, I mean, no, nobody forced it to happen, right? There wasn't one person directing it saying, hey, we're going to make all these things, you know, we're going we're gonna to have all the people, from, all the immigrants from Europe, like, live here in this small section. No, it's just, that's how it happened, right? There's no, there's no one force driving it. It's just how it happens. They get here. They don't have too much money. They're going to live where, where they can afford it, and that's going to be in the not-so-nice part of town. And then you've got all these different cultures living together. There's problems. What's the solution? You have to have, you know, people, people who, who have different customs need to have their own space to exist. They can't be forced into coexisting, right, if they don't want to. There can be tools that we utilize, right, systems of communication that we can employ to help people get along. But why aren't we employing those first as opposed to coming up with, you know, some of these ideas of like forced integration? You know, one of the, one of the of, uh, tenets, I guess, of the first amendment is that we have the freedom to associate with whoever we want to. Right. Mm-hmm. There's right. a reason for that. There's a reason for that is because when we associate with people that we're that aren't like us, it's a breeding ground for trouble. That doesn't mean that we can't be intolerant, or you know what I mean. That doesn't mean we we have to be intolerant of other people or the way that they think. That doesn't mean we can't be compassionate and and think about things from from their side or learn about their cultures so that we can better understand them to be forced into that situation or to be forced to live under those ideals until we're ready. It's a recipe for disaster. And, and, and by ready, I mean, we have to be willing to accept that, you know, Hey, I'm going to be interacting with these people I probably want to learn something about their culture. And and to tie this back in, like why am I going way off base, right? I'm not. Let's let's look at a movie like um what's that one Kevin Costner was in with the wolf? Um Dances with Wolves, right? That's it. Yep, Dances with Wolves, right? Yeah, he was in what, the uh the American army or whatever it was. Right. And, and they had, yeah, yeah. They had, they had one system of belief and then he gets out in the middle of nowhere and he's put into a situation where he's essentially forced to interact with native Americans. And what happens? Through uh, there were some volition. conflicts. Yeah, there were some conflicts at the beginning, right? Because mm-hmm. the two cultures don't understand each other. But then through his own volition, he and the chief made an effort to understand one another and an effort to get along. Right? So is conflict inevitable? Doesn't have to be. 
No, but it very quite possibly is inevitable. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see it pretty much everywhere when when two cultures are, are forced to co-mingle. And more when there are more cultures that are forced to co-mingle. And, you know, like I said before, not not forced by, like, someone's direction, but so sometimes just by forced by circumstance. Well, the, you know, there's... Uh... When we had uh, Dr. T.R. Kidder as a guest, um, I was at the start start of the uh, new year. Um, you know, we were talking about his papers on um, prehistoric climate change and how uh, you know, pov- the archaic. Um, ceremonial center was destroyed by the land around it was destroyed by a flood people couldn't utilize the land for about 500 years it is that much desolation all throughout the uh, Mississippi River Valley. Uh, um, And and the people in that part of the country had to go somewhere. If they weren't all wiped out first, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, The survivors would be refugees and they would have to start their lives over somewhere else, they would probably have to be absorbed by uh, surrounding cultures. Yeah, yeah, the other archaic people wherever they went. Um, You know, uh, know, Dr. Ken Sassman talks about you know, you know, they ha- had to, you know, these different uh, uh, cultures had to morph at some point uh, just to survive. Uh, you know, the smaller groups going to have to be, you know, absorbed into the, you know, the larger community. Um, you know, it's some of the regional differences we've talked about, you know, people with different backgrounds, it, it, you know, seem like they did they were able to survive at at one time when there was a massive natural disaster you know, so you know there it is one sample of where we can learn from how the the native peoples handled a uh catastrophic situation and you know, it was basically for survival. Yeah, it's really. It, it, it was it, 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 his uh, you know talk as well as uh, papers were uh, very interesting. I it's really got a lot out of him being a guest. But you know, it it is possible that people from different backgrounds can get together. You know, it's, Hopefully we can learn 
a lesson from uh, the native people from 3,000 years ago. Well, there are many lessons I think we could learn from the native peoples. Many, many lessons. But hey, you and I and um, Barbara were talking a bit before we uh, came on the show about um, the Newport Tower. Why don't we uh, why don't we wrap up the the show by getting back to that? Sure, sure. Yeah, um, you know, you had recently been to Rhode Island for some investigations. Uh, you know, I was you know just a- a- asking if you were you know, ha- happened to be near the Newport Tower and, and gave, gave us a little background on your thoughts of it. But uh, you know, now's the time to delineate what you've learned from your, your investigations and contrast with other somewhat similar structures. So, uh, Matt, go ahead and get, give us your yeah. theories of Newport Tower. So I can't claim these theories, right? I'm, I'm just, I'm the messenger here. So everything that you're about to hear, um, don't quote me exactly. This isn't my research, um, but I do find it quite interesting. Um, and some of these are my observations, uh, particularly what you're talking about, the other structure. Um, so you know, what is the Newport Tower? The Newport Tower is a cylindrical, uh, essentially two-story stone structure in Newport, Rhode Island, hence the Newport Tower. And it's got eight columns, and uh, they're about know, eight or so feet tall, maybe a little bit more. And they've got archways over the, the openings. And uh, the rest of it is a cylindrical, I don't know, hollowed out sort of structure that's, that's still there in Newport, Rhode Island. Now, the first historical mention of the Newport Tower um, was in the first governor of Rhode Island's will. Now, his name was Benedict Arnold. He was not the traitor that we know by the same name. That was a great, great grandson, I believe, of the governor. Um, But anyway, the first mention of this structure is in his will in about the 1670s or so. And he says that he, he refers to it as my stone-built windmill. Okay. Or, or more precisely, my stone-built grist mill, I think it was, or something like that. Again, don't quote me. It's not my research. But so, so the historians will take that and say, oh, well, um, well you know, Governor Benedict Arnold, he, he built it because he says so in his will. But, you know, this is an analogy from my buddy Larry, so I'm going to credit him because this is his. Uh, we were on the phone the other day, and he was explaining this, and, and I completely understand it anyway. But he says, if my uncle 
bought a house and it was made of wood and it was in, you know, let's just say Plymouth, Massachusetts. And my uncle also bought a house, let's say in Newport, Rhode Island, and it was built of stone. And he left his house in Newport to me in his will. And he called it my stone built house. Where was it said that the uncle built those houses himself? It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, there's no. There's no place that, that 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 would that that is stated. So if you look at the will, an argument can be made that he didn't actually build it. It just says my, meaning. He's the one that possesses it. Stone built, which is a descriptor, you know, mill or miln. It was M I L N, is the, the right word for it, proper, proper word for it. So, where does he actually say he built it? He doesn't. So, there's an argument that can be made that he didn't actually build it, that he only possessed it. Okay. Now, historians and, and naysayers will will get all hell bent about this, about this argument, because nobody was here before, ah, whoever, right? So some of the research this is where it gets interesting. Some of the research. Well, actually, let me hold off on that for a minute, a couple minutes. Uh, let's talk about why it may not be a windmill first because that ties into the other structure that you mentioned. Um, so the other structure is Chesterton windmill and that's over in England. Now this governor Arnold, Benedict Arnold was born and lived maybe I forget the exact distance, but it's around a hundred miles I think away and that might be like as the crow flies it might not even be exact like how how far it would take him right but you know he was he was further away from it and then he had moved from England to I think the United States um, around the time when he might be like 11 or 12 or something so some somewhere around that age he moved away from England Okay. Now, the Chesterton Windmill and the Newport Tower, they might look similar because the Newport Tower has eight columns, eight cylindrical columns. But the Chesterton Windmill has six legs. And when you look at it, the shapes might look similar but the construction is totally different, okay? The legs on the Chesterton windmill are squarish. And the blocks of stone were cut specifically to fit together. They're big, heavy blocks of stone. Why? Because when the weight of the, the structure on top of the legs is being blown by the wind, and you've got these big windmill arms out there, right? That creates 
a force and the, the columns need to be strong enough to handle that amount of wind. When we look at the Newport Tower, the eight columns are not built like that. They're cylindrical and they're all loosely laid, although like cemented into place or mortared into place, loosely laid stone that were they they weren't to you know cut to fit together okay and so the argument can be made that the the force of the wind against the structure would have been enough to topple the structure because the legs wouldn't have been able to properly support it now we know Newport is right there on the ocean. And we know that that part gets ransacked with hurricanes when they come through. Mm -hmm. But even a strong wind off the ocean, you know, let's just say it's a tropical storm. Might that have been enough to do severe damage to a windmill built out of stone? That doesn't seem... Go ahead. Possible. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the thing would just fall over, right? If it's not, mm-hmm. if the legs aren't aren't built to support it, and and uh, you know, here's another quick point: find another windmill entirely built out of stone. There isn't one. Why? Probably because that type of design is not fit for it. You know, probably probably the first person that tried it you know, had some some kind of failure, and word got around, and it's, this is a bad idea. Right. You know, there's there's reasons that that we have building codes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, won't get into that story, but look up the Great Molasses Flood of Boston. Um, that changed that changed how buildings and structures had to be built. Like there were codes put in place to say things have to be up to this certain spec. I'm not saying that windmills had that same thing, but people would have known, Hey, don't build it a certain way. Cause it, it's not going to work. You're going to run into problems mm-hmm. like that. You, you would have had that knowledge amongst carpenters or whatever. Right. The guilds. So, yeah. 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 So, so, all right. So, that that's that has to do with the legs, right? Now let's talk about the rest of the structure. Over the years, multiple um, astronomical alignments have been made to different parts of this, right? Um, there are windows that are in strange places. They're different sizes. Nothing about the placement of those are uniform, right? So you could take, you know, people say, oh, well, the sun comes in my window every certain day of the year. I said, okay, well, how many, how many days of the year does the sun go directly through one window or in one window and then out the other on the other side of the house? You know, and, and, and the orphic uh, egg. Yeah, there's that. And then, you know, just 
anybody, you know, was your house was your house designed that way to let the sunlight on the winter solstice through one window and out the other? It wasn't designed that way. I'm talking about design because uh, this is a, I'm quoting my friend Patrick, who is doing most of the research. Um, design equals function. So if the structure is designed for the sun to go through it on that particular day, well, doesn't that tell you something about the function of the structure? And if it's not just one, but multiple alignments, well, what does that say? I mean, if if anybody could come up with, hey, my house has one alignment, Okay, that's one thing. That could be coincidence. But if your house has right. multiple alignments, well, maybe it was it seems designed like that way. Part, yeah, it's part of a pattern. That and that's the right. theme, you know one of the themes that has gone throughout tonight's show is um, anthropological patterns and right. Yeah, the, the right. structures have patterns too. Right. So now how can we prove that the structure would be any older than, you know, when, when the governor had first owned the land and do, do the carbon 14 testing. Yeah, there was that. And then there are arguments that it was tainted or, or done wrong. And even that some of the results were not presented properly in order to maintain the narrative that it belonged and was built by the governor, Benedict Arnold. Um, But is there another way that we could date it? So celestial alignments possible. But this is this is where things get really interesting, and I almost started down this a few minutes ago. But here's where it really gets interesting. Okay, lay it on. I, <laughs> so I had asked my friend Patrick, who's again doing this research. I said, which by this point of me asking the question, he had already found four maps on which it appears that the structure is there predates its supposed construction. And these maps are, I think, like the early 1600s. Like, I think 1634, I'm not sure Mm -hmm. the exact dates, right? 1639, 1634, you know. That sounds right. But they predate the supposed ownership of of, um, Benedict Arnold, right? So at the time I asked the question... I asked Patrick, you know, which maps and at, you know, what were the dates of the maps does the Newport Tower possibly appear on? So he sent me, um, you know, a quick list and links to the maps. Mm-hmm. But to him, that was like, I don't know, maybe a light bulb 
because after that, um, he started, he and um, another researcher, Steve. DeMarzo? Uh, Steve DeMarzo, yeah. Um, great guy. Um, mm-hmm. They started looking for these maps and, you know, all of these different places now put their old archives online. So they search all these different academic sites for maps. And I shit you not, but the count right now, as I last checked, was up to about 115 maps on which the tower possibly appears. And and the research is just Anybody can go look for themselves, find the Facebook page called Phippsburg History Center. That's Phippsburg with a PH and two P's after that. Phippsburg, it's a town in Maine. Phippsburg History Center, find that page on Facebook. It, all of the research is published there in, in real time. So if, if Pat's working on something, if Steve finds something, they research it, they look into it, they'll publish something on the page, right? You don't have to wait for them to put out a book or anything, you know? And I have to say, like, a lot of that stuff, like, Pat's, Pat's was in the Navy for about 27 or 30 years or something like that, right? So he's a naval guy. He's, he's got this understanding of math that I just can't even comprehend. Math is like my weak point, Right. So there's a lot that Pat talks about that's just over my head. Okay. We don't do math on so, night light. Yeah, right? Like, it's just not the place for it. So, you know, if you're reading through the page and you feel like some of it's over your head, it's okay, you know? I feel that way too. But there's still a whole lot of interesting stuff there that you will understand and it's just amazing, amazing research. And no one is coming out and debunking this because they can't. Well, if you they have volcanic can't. maps, uh, um, yeah, there's, yeah, there's really nothing to debate. Yeah. You get some of those, uh, Maps that, uh, you know, when Steve and Patrick were guests, uh, what there it is. You know, we know, you know, these are authentic maps going back like four hundred years or so. Uh, Because they're they're finding them back now too. I think the earliest one they have dated was um, between 1100 and 1199. And that just, that just blows your mind. Like there were even people mapping the coastline over here at that point. Oh, and Bill Mann has shown, you know, discussed the maps uh, that from like the 14th century of you know New England, Eastern Canada, that have these 
like medieval looking structures. Yeah. Uh, how do you explain that? <laughs> I mean, there's there's an explanation, right? What is it? There has to be there has to be more that we don't know. But this is the kind of research that has to be done, and. I just feel like a lot of the academics are too lazy to actually do it. And maybe the, you know, maybe lazy isn't the right word, right? Maybe it's just, they're not moved to do it. I don't think anybody wants to be the one that rocks the boat. Mm-hmm. You know, you get that. They say like history is seldom made by, Silent people. Well, the yeah, the the well behaved. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I just the most damning evidence. Um. In the case for the structure being older, I believe is some of the most recent posts that you'll find on Phippsburg History Center, and that has and those those posts are the graphs that Pat and Steve put together. Um, and it, and it, it, when you look at that, it's, it's, it's like, I can't possibly keep track of 115 maps. Right. So it, it brings all of that together in, in one visual. And you look at it and you're just like, oh, my God. How, like, I can't even begin to comprehend that, let alone formulate an argument against it. Now, it's not like they just looked at each map and said, oh, there's a little something there that looks like the tower. Let's just put it on the list. That's not how they did it. They looked at each map. Like I said, Pat's a Navy guy, right? So he knows what naval things he knows he has all that naval knowledge and he knows how to figure out on maps latitude and longitude and so when you figure out the latitude and longitude for 115 or probably more maps i know that there are some that they even ruled out because they just can't either replicate a result or um you know, maybe the, the image that they see on the map isn't quite as strong as they need it to be. So they certainly have ruled things out. But for each one of these maps, it's vetted. And you can read those posts and you can see what they did to vet the map before they put it on the list. So you can't just look at that one image and say, oh, well, they just threw it together. No, 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 they didn't. They scrutinized each map. They scrutinized the details of each map. They broke everything down on the map, and they looked at it closely. Like at the mm-hmm. beginning of this, this, when we started talking about the, the legs, right, I brought you in and described for you the differences between the legs, right? So that you can visually understand it. They went to that depth and even deeper to 
to scrutinize these maps. And when you see that come out like, you know, 115 or so posts, one for each map, and, and you know, again, I can't, I didn't read them all, I can't possibly understand everything that's in there, but the ones that I did read, it's a very, very, very strong case for that, for that particular map. And they did that with all 115. So to me, that's, that's very, very, very interesting research. And I can't possibly yeah, yeah. begin to, to even formulate anything against it. Yeah, uh, Patrick and Steve were, I thought they pre- presented a very thorough investigation, you know, for, for it's kind of hard to, uh, you know, I think some of the maps are on the archive video, but, uh, um, yeah, you know, I thought they presented their case very well. Uh, yeah, you, you, know, you do that with your, you know, you know, we, you know, with the seven eight minutes left, uh, you know, people can get a copy of your uh, field notes for your. Uh, Examination of this stone chamber. You know, I think that you did a very thorough job. You know, and you even brought up, uh, you know, Barbara's uh, "Secrets of the Stones" video a couple times during tonight's discussion. And, you know, that's, she has everything th- thoroughly documented on there, and photos, and maps, and all kinds of stuff on. You know, where, uh, where they're located, more detailed information on there. Uh, you know, so I, I, I think we have a. You when know, we've been doing these, uh, a little bit before, you know, like pre-contact, uh, proto-historic type. Uh, time period uh, shows you know the uh, guests we've had I think have presented uh, you know top top quality documentation yeah absolutely Uh, the information there yeah we you know there are people who do uh, you know you know they're a little out there with uh You know their interpretations. On, you know we'll, we'll be getting in, into that in September when uh, we do a uh, UFO show. Uh, the, uh, but you know there are some really good researchers out there who who do just as professional job as the college professors who are in charge of these digs and you know, you know they're just very passionate of wanting to get history right and several guests we've had uh, are 
you know, going back it's six, you know, four to six hundred years, uh, you know, looking at the, that time period, uh, I, I, I've been really impressed with their research. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's really what we care about is getting it right. And sometimes, you know, his, that's the the impression I got. Yeah, history is, you know, a lot of it is is recorded and a lot of it isn't, right? A lot of it is buried, and the only way mm-hmm. we can understand it is to unearth it. And you know, whether that's through archival research or uh, an archaeological process. That's how we're going to do it. But science is an ever-evolving field. It's not static. And to think that any one part of it can or should be static, it, it detracts from the truth, ultimately, is what it does. When, you know, I, I, I've looked at a couple of things, old field reports, and I've, I've tried to check it with new tools and new ways and I won't get into it because we don't have the time and I've gone to old researchers and I said hey I was able to check this you know theory that you had in this report 40 years ago and you know unfortunately it doesn't hold up and I'm I'm astounded that I could even pick that out and and you know now that we have different tools I'm able to see that and, and they didn't have that back then. But, you know, I, I'm just looking to, to create a connection with the person who wrote that field report. And when the response that I get is, you know, they're offended that I, that I'm, I'm, that I found something different, that their idea didn't hold up, to me that's the wrong response. I would imagine that if somebody came to me in 40 years from now and said, Hey Matt, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking into your research and I'm finding something different. I'd want to know by all means, Mm -hmm. tell me what you found that's different because the only reason you found something different is because you're standing on my shoulders, right? I'm standing on the shoulders of the person whose field report I read. Right. And if I can see a little bit further, it's because of the work that he did. I'm not looking to detract from him or bring him down. I'm looking for a connection with him. Right. To say, hey, look, we we both looked at this site and, you know, I, I looked at something that you couldn't possibly have seen back then. You know, talking like satellite imagery, just so that there's a specific thing. But. Um, you know, you, they didn't have access to that. They couldn't possibly have. So how could he have, you know, figured that out? He couldn't have. So rather than, than say, hey, tell me what you found, yeah, it's a different thing. But that's an example of somebody not wanting to get to the truth. And, and, you know, I care about the truth. So 40 years from now, somebody says, hey, you were wrong. By all means, explain it to me and show me something new. Because I want to learn. I want the truth. And if you are close to the truth than I am, I want to know. Right. Hey, um, Matt, we're down to uh, like 90 seconds. 
Um, okay. Do, uh, do you want to give um, the listeners, uh, you know, in, your website, any contact information, uh, upcoming appearances, anything like that? Sure. So you um, spelled it out earlier. It's N E H S S I E. Now you can find that at the dot com. So Nessie.com. If you're interested in getting the field report that we talked about and my upcoming book, when I'm done with it, it will be released in the same place. Go to book.nessie.com. That's N-E-H-S-S-I-E. That's how I say it, Nessie. Um, book.nessie.com. You can find it. Search for Nessie on Facebook. We have facebook.com forward slash Nessie. That's the Facebook page. Join the group where you can share things with us and others at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Nessie. Search for Nessie on YouTube, Instagram, Gab, or search for Matt Adams on Gab. Search for Nessie on uh, Pinterest and uh, I think Twitter. Okay. All right. Hey, uh, we are down to just a few seconds. Matt, I want to thank you for being a guest. And thanks, Barbara, for producing, and we'll see everyone soon.